Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is August 8th, 2022, just creeping into the 12th day of Av, 5782. And that's actually what the show is going to be about because we are right in the middle of the 9th of Av, which is the day that we just fasted and commemorated a lot of the catastrophes that happened to the Jewish people over much of our time, specifically the destructions of the temples, but not only. And coming up, though, is what should be one of the most joyous days of our calendar year, and that's the 15th of Av. So I am right now in, I think, one of the most beautiful places in the world, at least the part of the world that I've seen. I'm in Aspen, Colorado, Rocky Mountain High. I'm here to speak. I'm speaking uh, tomorrow night. There is an amazing man who lives here, Dr. Alan Altman, who has made it his business to educate people in Aspen as to what's really going on um, and not just some of the liberal stuff that they're so inundated with here. I just came from Los Angeles, so I know what's going on there as well. I spoke there in a synagogue on Shabbat. But anyway, so he brought Eugene Kontorovich a little bit back. I think Carolyn Glick is on her way here as well. So I'm definitely in very, very esteemed company. But I'm not going to really talk about politics um, on the show tonight. I want today, I wanted to really bring in the connection between the 9th of Av and the 15th of Av. And I think it's an example of how something can be used either for good or for bad. I have met many people, as I'm sure all of you have, who are really smart, but they use their brains to do bad things. And we all know that, let's say the internet, for example, can be used for amazing things and to learn and to connect people. And it can also be used for not great things. So I think the Bible is giving us a tremendous example of that when it comes to the 9th of Av and the 15th of Av, reading between the lines and not really even so deeply. I mean, it's, it's almost obvious. And I think that you guys will see that when I'm finished with this in a few minutes. So the original sin, if you will, of the ninth of Av is considered by the sages to be actually the sin of the spies, right? We all know the story. We read about it in the weekly portion not so long ago um, in, the, uh, in the weekly portion of Shlach Lecha, where the spies, although they're not called spies at the time, they're called people who are just going to scout out the land. They're scouts. And they go into the land. We've left Egypt with Moses. We're supposed to come in. And 10 out of the 12 come back with a bad report. But what they come back carrying as proof of how dangerous the land is, is, of course, a tremendous cluster of grapes. They also come back with pomegranates and figs, all things that you find growing in Israel right now. Um, the grapes get the headlines, though, and that's why the um, the symbol for the Ministry of Tourism is actually two people carrying an enormous cluster of grapes to show that the land is actually very, very good. We're kind of pushing back on that, um, which I believe with all my heart. But the sin of the spies involves the grapes. It involves using the grapes to show something bad. And um, reading here from that biblical portion, so they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin till Rechov at the entrance to Hamat. They went up in the south and came to Hebron, and there were Achiman, etc., etc., the descendants of the giant. They came to the valley of Eshkol, and they cut a branch with a cluster of grapes. They carried it on a pole between two people, and they also took some pomegranates and figs, and they called the place the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster the children of Israel cut from there. And they returned from scouting land at the end of 40 days. And we know what happens after that. So the question is here, how this connects 
to an amazing story that also has to do with agriculture, and that has to do actually with wheat. So I'm going to digress for a second, and I'm going to jump now into the book of Ruth, which happens uh, at the same time period as the book of Judges. It's not included in the book of Judges, um, apparently because, and that's one of the theories, because it is the opposite of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is the slide from, you know, the great judges and the people all being together and listening and helping each other all the way to the murder and almost complete decimation of the tribe of Benjamin. So Ruth kind of stands in contrast to that, showing loving kindness, showing, uh, which is actually what the point of this podcast is, is how we turn the baseless hatred that um, led to the destruction of the second temple, according to the sages, and how we turn that into the loving kindness that will bring the good times, which we could all certainly use. So just digressing for a second, and this will all hang together, I promise you. Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, I would like to go to the fields and glean among the stalks of grain behind someone who may show me kindness. I'm reading, that was from Ruth 2, too. And from Ruth, third chapter, uh, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. So most of us are probably not familiar with the threshing floor. But the threshing floor is one of the agricultural facilities that is used among people who uh, grow wheat. Um, a threshing floor is by, it's where you separate the wheat from the chaff. So you have to have a little bit of wind. You throw up the wheat from the chaff, and it separates the heavier part from the lighter part, and then you're able to eat the wheat and throw away the chaff. There's actually an expression like that, separating the wheat from the chaff. This is where it comes from. So a threshing floor by nature has to be in a place where there's some wind. It has to be in an open place and a place where there is some wind. So the most famous threshing floor that we know about, and I know you guys know this, is actually the Temple Mount, which I also think is a clue as to what the temple stands for, you know, um, separating the bad from the good, understanding and separating what is good and what is bad. So now I'm going to read to you from Samuel 2, verse 24. And Aravina said, Why is the Lord my king come to serve it? And David said, To acquire from you the threshing floor in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And the king said to Aravina, No, I will only buy it for you at a price. He won't take it as a gift. I will, so I'll not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings, which I received for nothing. And David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So King David is not allowed, as we know, to build the temple because he's a warrior. Very powerful message that the Torah is giving us. Uh, we have to wage war. And we just saw that this last week. When evil people rise up against you, you have to do whatever you can to protect yourselves. However, it comes at a price. And the price is not being allowed to build the house of God because God is ultimately about peace. And that's what's left to Shalom, Shlomo, the man of peace, his son, to build it. But David does whatever he can, as many of us do as parents, to prepare things for our kids. And what he does is actually buy this threshing floor from Aravna the Jerobosite so it'll be ready for Solomon when he's ready to build the temple. So now for those of you who've been to Jerusalem, and for those of you who haven't, so I'll describe it, um, the Temple Mount is a mountain. It's Mount Moriah. You can't see the mountain anymore unless you go underground, which is where, where I take people. You can't actually see the mountain anymore. You just see the platform upon which the Second Temple and later on Herod's Temple were built. But there's a mountain there called Mount Moriah, but is by far not the biggest mountain in the area. For those of you who have been there, so close your eyes and imagine it with me. 
To the east, you have the Mount of Olives. To the north, you have Mount Scopus. To the southwest-ish, you have Mount Zion. Um, and they're all higher than the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, if it was like in a big bowl, it's like a scoop of ice cream in a big bowl. It's rimmed around it. And it turns out that, as the ancients would have known, it's a great place for a threshing floor. Because if you have too much wind, like if you built the threshing floor on the top of the Mount of Olives, for example, everything would blow away. And if you built a threshing floor in the valley or in a place that doesn't have enough wind, nothing's going to separate at all. So it's kind of like a Goldilocks. You need just the right amount. And that's what the Temple Mount is. And we need to really, especially when we go into land and we see the places where all these amazing things happened, but think about it in the context before the incredible things happened, when the people come, right? When, when Abraham comes, this is before, way before the events that I'm just describing now, hundreds of years before, and he sees Mount Moriah, and that is where he doesn't sacrifice Isaac. Another, mention, another uh, very important component of that mountain to a child sacrifice doesn't happen, okay? Where worship of God is going to take a tremendous turn because of the monotheist Abraham. And so that mountain has a lot of meaning even before anything is built on it. But it is a threshing floor. It's the perfect threshing floor. So now let us jump to Judges, Judges 6, verse 11. We're doing some Bible today, guys. If you want to get your Bible out, actually, I should have told you that at the beginning of the show and flip through. Probably not a bad idea. Okay, Judges 6. We're talking about Gideon. And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak, which was an Ophrah that belonged to Yoash, the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to be able to enable to flee from Midian. That is a fascinating sentence because there's a war of Midian. Midian is coming in and this sets up the stage for what happens during a war. So during a war, um, the people are coming. They're not just coming to kill you and to take over your land, take over your water, but also to take over your food. So Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press, which is not where you're going to beat out wheat. You're going to beat out wheat in a threshing floor, and you're going to be pressing grapes in a wine press. Two very, very different facilities. Incidentally, there's a confusion about where the name Gethsemane comes from, the famous valley at the foot of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, because in Hebrew it means gat shumanim. Gat is wine press. Shemen is oil. You would not press grapes in a an oil press. It needs very, very different. It needs a much lighter hand. Um, you would also not press your olives for oil in a wine press. You couldn't because the wine press is people squishing the grapes. It doesn't work. You need a lot more pressure on the olives. So that's actually a, a little bit of a question is how Gethsemane gets in its name. But I digressed again. So Gideon is beating out weed in a wine press. Now that tells you right away that there is danger afoot. Because as I explained to you about the threshing floor, it has to be open. It has to be in an open area. You can have wind. Now, if there's a war and you're hiding from people, you're not sitting out in your threshing floor. So Gideon has to beat out wheat in a wine press. And I'll tell you in a minute why a wine press. But first, what time of year would this be? And for this, you need to know the calendar and the agricultural cycle of the land of Israel, which I've talked about before. So let's see if you remember it. The seven species associated with our holidays. Passover, the barley harvest, the story of Ruth as it happens, happening during the Omer, during the seven weeks between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, which is Shavuot, Pentecost. And then in the summer, as I mentioned, the three of the seven um, the seven species that they talk about in the Sin of Spies, so we know that they came in in the summer, right? The figs and the grapes and the pomegranates to repeat. And then Sukkot, 
we have the dates and the, the palm fronds, the lulav, sitting under the schach, sitting under the palm fronds. It's the date harvest season. And then Hanukkah, which is not a biblical holiday, but it's all about the olive oil. And that's exactly when the holidays happen is when those agricultural cycles happen. So when is Gideon beating his wheat? When is wheat ripening? In the early summer, late spring, early summer, when Shavuot happens in our other calendar, May, June, right? In the Hebrew calendar around the time of Sivan. So what is going on? So he can't be on a threshing floor because it's dangerous. Why wine press? Well, what does a, a, a vineyard look like at that time of year? And why, why a vineyard? Because ideally the wine presses are actually in the vineyard. As we all know from anybody who's gone to the store and bought grapes, by the time you get home, you're lucky if more, not just a few are squished because they're delicate, they're soft. So ideally in the ancient world, you actually had your wine press or in Hebrew got in the vineyards. Because then you would press them, you didn't have to move them too far, and you would press them. And sure enough, that's exactly what we have found all over Samaria, all over the Shomron, especially in Shiloh, which of course has to do with this story, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, this this podcast is going to bring together a whole lot of things. Um, so ideally, you are your wine press is in the vineyards. And sure enough, that's exactly where Gideon is. He's in the vineyards. Well, what does a vineyard look like at that time of year? Well, the grapes are only starting to ripen now. Um, they're going to be harvested depending on the elevation where they are. The wine grapes are going to be harvested right about now for the next month or so. But uh, in, let's say, June, May, June, Sivan, they're very green. There's a lot of leaves, but the grapes are not yet ready to be eaten. And that means that the Midianites are not going to be looking for the grapes because they know the agricultural cycle of the area as well. And they understand that the grapes aren't ripe. There's no point to going in there. They're going to be looking for food in other areas where there's likely to be ripe food. However, the leaves are in full foliage and it is the perfect place to hide. If you are in a vineyard in the middle of winter, you can't hide there. It's just all these spindly stalks. But already by the beginnings of the summer, it's very green and lush, but the fruit isn't ready. So when you understand that, then you understand what the Torah doesn't tell us is why Gideon is in the wine press. We understand that there's danger and he has to be somewhere else, but why particularly there? I think that this is the answer. It's some, something I heard from one of my teachers, Efrat Natan. I thought it was an amazing insight as to why he would be there. So now we understand about the wine and what's happening here. So now let's go back to the book of Judges, to the story of Benjamin, and how this relates to the 15th of Av, which has become, well, it's become or should be um, our holiday of love. Judges 21, verses 20 to 23. And they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie and wait in the vineyards, and you will see and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dance, then in the dance to come out to dance, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and you shall grab for yourselves each man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And the children of Benjamin did so, and married wives according to their numbers. And of those that danced whom they had seized, and they went to return to their inheritance and built the cities and dwelt in them. So this is the end of that horrible story where there's a civil war and the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely decimated, including the women and children. And to reconstitute themselves, they, the, this few hundred men that are left need wives. And how do they get wives is exactly what I read to you, that the daughters of Shiloh come to dance in the vineyards. 
and they take wives for themselves from the vineyards. And now we're connecting the vineyards and we're connecting Shiloh, which is where grapes are still being grown today. Amazing, amazing wineries all over that area. And that, um, and now I'm going to read to you another side of the grapes of maybe overdoing it or maybe not. Now I'm jumping to Samuel 1, verse 18 to uh, Samuel 1, chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why did you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Uh, This is Eve's note. This is not the Bible's note terrible line. That's one of the worst lines in the entire Bible. What Elkanah says, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Dear Elkanah, one thing has nothing to do with the other. Hannah wants children. It could be that she loves you to pieces, but you're not replacing having children for her. And the fact that he doesn't empathize with her and understand her pain, maybe because he has children from another wife, um, is something that when I take, especially teenage boys to Shiloh, I read them this verse and I say, that's not going to happen to you um, with your girlfriend or your wife. You're going to understand her pain and you're not going to pull this line. And I think it's another example of the Bible giving us something to learn from because you can learn from other people's mistakes, can't we? So Hannah rose after eating and drinking and Eli, the priest, was sitting on the chair beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Of course, what this is, is the Mishkan. This is the time when the tabernacle is in Shiloh. It's way before the temple is built. And Hannah was bitter in spirit, and she prayed to the Lord and wept, and she vowed a vow and said to the Lord of hosts, If you will look upon the affliction of your bondswoman, you remember me. You will not forget your bondswoman, and you will give your bondswoman a man-child, and I shall give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. She'll give him to serve in the tabernacle. And she prayed before the Lord, and and the Kohen, the priest, Eli, Eli was watched her mouth, But Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving. See, these days, if you saw somebody doing that, you would just figure they're on their phone with the thing in their ear because everybody walks around looking like they're talking to themselves. But in those days, it would be weird. And so her voice was not heard. And Eli thought her to be drunk, to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, until when will you be drunk? Throw off your wine from upon yourself. And of course, she's not drunk, but it just shows that because they're in a wine area, that would have been a possibility. But he misreads what she's doing. And the rabbis later say, incidentally, that the paradigm of prayer is actually Hannah's prayer to God straight from the heart. So we have Hannah praying in Shiloh. For a son, which is Sam, which, spoiler alert, turns out to be Samuel, the tremendous prophet. And we have Gidon in a, in a uh, vineyard, in, in a gut, in a, in a wine press, instead of in his threshing floors, he should be. And we have agriculture all over for us. And we have definite proof of the wine growing and the importance of wine. And then we come to the holiday of the 15th of Av, of Tuba Av, which is coming up in just a few days. And what they say about the holiday of the 15th of Av, there were no, this is from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Ta'anit, 30b to 31a. There were no holidays so joyous for Israel as the 15th of Av and Yom HaKippurim. For on those days, daughters of Jerusalem would go out and dressed in borrowed white clothing so they would all look the same. So there's no hierarchy. There's nobody wearing like an Armani dress while someone else is like dressed in, I don't know, something from TJ Maxx. Everybody, you can tell I was just in LA shopping, right? Um, Not in Armani, not that one. But anyway, so everybody was kind of like equal. The king's daughters would borrow from those of the high priest. Daughters of the high priest would borrow from the assistant high priest's daughters 
daughters of the assistant would borrow from the daughters of the priest designated to lead the people in times of war. The Kohen anointed for war's daughters would borrow from the daughters of the ordinary priest and the daughters of the rest of Israel borrow from each other so as not to embarrass those who didn't have. And the daughters of Jerusalem would go out and dance in the vineyards located on the outskirts of the city. And everyone who didn't have a wife would go there following what I just told you about. So that becomes our holiday of couplehood, of joy, of marriage, of love, following just on the heels of a day where we mourn. And that, I think, is so indicative of Judaism and of Israel. Um, well, yes, we mourn, and we have a lot to mourn about, but, oh, we rejoice. And we rejoice to greater levels than we mourn. It's symbolic even in the forty-eight crazy 48 hours that we have in the spring in modern-day Israel, where we have our Yom Zikaron, our Memorial Day, and right afterwards we have our um, our our joy of independence, our Independence Day. Okay, so there it's all together. Our pendulum swings super, super, super wide. So Tuba'av is mentioned in other sources as equating with joy. Rav Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, it is the day on which permission was granted to the tribes to intermarry, right? Because those girls who are dancing in the vineyards, they're not necessarily from the tribe of Benjamin, as we said. The women of, Me- of Benjamin have been killed. So they're from other tribes. And up until that time, it appears that the tribes had to marry within the tribes, mainly to ensure the continuation of the inheritance of the land. But at this is the point where they can already intermarry. Genetically speaking, that was a much smarter way to go. I'm just throwing that in there in 2022. Rabbi Yosef said in the name of Rabbi Nachman, it is the day on which the tribe of Benjamin was permitted to re-enter the congregation following the episode of the concubine in Giv'ah. Rabbi Ben Barchana said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, it is a day on which the generation of the wilderness ceased to die out. Those who were doomed to die in the desert after the sin of the spies, the generation that had come out of Egypt was deemed to be not ready for the freedom and the responsibility of going into the land and fighting for the land. Something that I think reflects even today is the generation of so many years of powerlessness in the diaspora, we're still working our way out of that in the modern day state of Israel on how to use power and on how to, to win our wars completely. We're not winning our wars completely yet. Okay, we're just kind of, as they say, mowing the lawn. And we have to be able to be confident and understand enough that that does, just doesn't work. And it costs us our lives and the lives of good people. But what happened in the desert is that anyone who was over the age of 20 was doomed to die in the desert and not enter the land. And every year, apparently, on the 9th of Av, they would dig their own graves and get in, and then they would die. And then on the last year, they went in on the 9th of Av, and they lay down, and they woke up the next morning, and again, and again, and again, until the 15th of Av. And that is when they realized that the decree was over, that everybody who'd lived through that time period was going to be able to come into the land. And that's the explanation for what I just read. Rav Matana said, it is a day when permission was granted for those killed at Beitar to be buried. So the talk that I gave on Shabbat in Los Angeles, right before Tisha B'Av, was actually on the Bar Kokhba revolt and on the destruction of the Bar Kokhba revolt. The Bar Kokhba revolt's last stand was in a place called Beitar, very close to where I live uh, in Efrat, just a few miles away. But the Romans didn't even let the Jews be buried. And uh, so according to this rabbi, 
Tuba'av is the day when they were finally allowed to be buried. And there's another few reasons, um, but Tuba'av is definitely associated with joy. And that's what's coming up in just a few days. It doesn't erase the sad times. It doesn't erase the horrors that have happened to us. But there is that balance and there is that joy. One of the most amazing things that I see when I guide Yad Vashem, when I guide the Museum to the Holocaust, the last film right before you leave the museum, and I try and always stop and see it, is a woman and her husband being interviewed about how they were in the DP camps, the displaced persons camps at the end of the war. They both had lost their entire family, and they got married and they had children. And so did every other people there who didn't even really know each other. They got together just to have someone and to love someone and to recreate families. And that is not so easily understood when you've gone through tremendous loss and tremendous pain. Um, A lot of people, and actually people that I know and I'm very close to, shy away from connecting, shy away from love because they don't want to be hurt again. Um, But that means that you don't really live. You don't live life to the fullest. Yeah, loving people and caring about people is taking a chance that you will be hurt. You will inevitably hurt. That's the other side of caring about people is at some point they'll disappoint. But that doesn't mean that you don't get in there and get the good times. And that's something that we Jews have known for a long, long time. And we in Israel are really exemplifying that, I think, at this time, is you integrate the, the bad times and the difficult times um, like we had this last week and the tremendous miracles, by the way, of this week. I think if you didn't see what was going on in the land and I wasn't there and it was incredibly difficult for me, um, then you're not really seeing what's happening. But um, to integrate the difficult times, to know that they're going to come, to open ourselves up to it, because otherwise you don't up, open yourselves up to the good times and to the joy. Living in Israel is not easy. It comes with a tremendous price. The The reward is indescribable to understand that we're living through a miracle, that God has never lost faith in us, that he brought us home, that we have a lot to do, and we're doing it really well, making a lot of mistakes, but doing a really, really good job overall. Um, And I think that this week, symbolizing between the ninth of Av and Tuba Av, is the Bible telling us that, and telling us through food, telling us through agriculture, telling us through the grapes and even through the wheat of the land of Israel, the symbolism of where the temple was built on the threshing floor of Ravna the Jebusite is where the house of God is built, where, please God, it will be built again, where those of us, and I I wasn't in Israel for, for the ninth of Av, so I wasn't able to go on the Temple Mount, but many, many people did. Not so easy in the heat and when you're fasting. And they went to show fealty, to show remembrance, to show um, faith, to show faith. Uh, walking only in certain areas because don't want to tread where the Holy of Holies was or where the temple was. Being very, very careful, but pushing, pushing back because we also understand there's a bigger picture here of people who are watching. And if we don't have faith and if we don't show our belief in a public way, then there's no reason for the enemy to not believe that he has us on the run. So there's a lot of things going on here on very many different levels. But the source of it all is the Bible. The source of it all is the Tanakh. And it's really, it was a joy for me to be able to prepare. This is based on a, a presentation that I gave at a conference, at a Limud conference uh, a few years ago, pre-COVID. And I wanted to share it with you guys today as the show fell out during this week. Um, as an example of 
really of keeping the faith and an understanding that the Bible has so many more layers than we usually give it credit for. So have a joyous Tuba Av wherever you are. Um, maybe have a glass of wine, toast Israel, toast Jewish people, toast the good people of humanity, and hopefully do it with someone that you love, but not to excess, never to excess. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network, thanking Tabitha and Ben, and thanking God also. I'm looking out of the window of my hotel. It is just so beautiful. The green mountains, the blue sky, and the clouds of the Rocky Mountains. This is really a little piece of heaven on earth. Um, he created a beautiful world. He really did. And I feel very privileged to be able to visit places, different places, different people, and be able to try in whatever simple way, modest way that I can, to share my knowledge, to share my love, to share my passion for the Jewish people and our journey and my faith with whoever I can. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care wherever you are. And goodbye for now. You're listening to the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com, broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world.